In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then, turning to the disciples, Jesus said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Thank you, Lily. You can grab a seat. Um, we'll be in Luke chapter 10, 9 and 10. But, you know, I don't know about you, but it's been my experience that um, at least within the, the church world, um, the life of faith, that um, perhaps nothing is considered more authentic or genuine than span- spontaneous prayer. Right or wrong, good or bad, there's this idea that like this like unplanned, unsolicited, like natural burst of prayer and petition, whether that's praise or petition to the Lord, is like the most genuine and authentic way to speak to God. And like, depending on how you grew up, that, that, you may think that's the only way to pray. That was the only way you learned to pray was whatever was on your heart in the moment at the time. Um, um, or like maybe you grew up learning to pray through the prayers of others um, and all those kind of things. And hopefully at Christ City, like we try to mix those things because there's a real beauty to both of them. But, but what we have here, and kind of regardless of any tradition, um, is that what, in whatever tradition we come from, the unsolicited praise or petition of a child, especially a child, right? The spontaneous kind of bursting of a child talking to God um, strikes at the heart of all who hears Here's them pray, right? However simplistic it is, however complex it is, however deep or shallow, whatever it's about, there's something about this unsolicited, spontaneous prayer of a child that seems honest and sincere. And that's really what we're getting a picture of right here in Jesus' prayer in Luke chapter 10. A spontaneous, joyous communion that flows into a proclamation for everybody to hear. It's this exuberance embrace of the Spirit's close kinship and from which Jesus prays, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things and revealed them to little children. I thank you, Father. I thank you, the one who knows me, the one whom, whom I am. Uh, I'm a son, right? This, there's this idea of Jesus is acting like a child. He's speaking to the Father like a child. He says, I thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things from the astute and the learned, yet revealed them to little children. It's not every day, I think, that we would want to be um, counted as little children. Um, Yet even the prophets and the kings of old would have gladly taken up such a label to hear and see what the disciples of Jesus witnessed. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus' prayer is just like, hey, listen, the little children get to see it. Prophets and kings, the ones who stand up before everybody with all the courage and say the words of God to everyone, the ones who are rulers who are trying to orchestrate God's kingdom to come into existence, they would have longed to be a part of what the children get to be a part of. These things, the things that we've learned about and discussed last week, the grace, that are the gracious will of God are also the gracious words becoming flesh. Words taking um, up, from taking form in everyday lives of those who hear and um, who have ears to hear and eyes to see the liberation of the captives. I think we have a, a, the text for that, right? From last week in Luke chapter four. Liberation from the captives, the proclamation, 
um, freeing those whose true selves are bound by voices internal and external, sometimes whispering, other times shouting, and ever morphing alternatives of purpose, success, identity, or good life. Freed from that captivity. The recovery of sight to those who uh, once saw themselves clearly, who's and who they were, but who find themselves blindly following or aimlessly living. Freedom for those burdened rather than flourishing, whose authentic God-related personhood is pressed down by systems and structures, both religious and secular. The universe-creating word speaking, once again, peace, the Lord's favor over all the earth. His affectionate satisfaction drenching those who are poor, who are in need who find themselves unable to provide the resources that life demands, at least alone. Here in Jesus' jubilant, spontaneous, Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Spirit prayer, this public conversation, we discover the source of what we speak, the fount from which we bear witness in our lives of faith, the salt that flavors all of our conversations. But to see it clearly, we've, we've got to take a step back, to really see these things and how these things that are hidden from the wise and astute, but that we as children get to experience, to let that be seen with clarity and transformity. We've kind of got to stay, take a step back and look at the, re, the first steps that Jesus makes from Galilee to Samaria. You remember last week, this is how loose gospel works, right? That like the other gospels, there's a connection to the greater story there's the words becoming reality, the kingdom coming, what Jesus is saying, coming out into life. And then there's this invitation to imitation. And in most of the Gospels, the Matthew and Mark, they jump into kind of the final days of Jesus' life. But Luke adds this, this, this Samaritan wanderings, this time where Jesus, about 10 chapters, where Jesus moves through a different place. Again, chapter 9 begins with Jesus empowering those he invited to follow him, to become imitators of him. To not just be ones who believed him, but got to do the things that he did. To proclaim the good news of the kingdom. To liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed, and the Lord's peace, favor upon all. And to do so in the ordinary places of the market, the home, the synagogue, and even the heart. This empowerment takes place first in a context that is familiar with the message. Ones who are actually looking for this to take place a place and a people in history looking for God to work in and amongst them and against their enemies, a place called Galilee, this section of, of land that is in the northern part of Israel. I think we got a map up there that we can throw up. There you go. Um, don't know how I can see it, but Galilee. This is where the, the first part of Luke's gospel takes place. It's a place, again, that expected God to work. They were looking for God to move. That's why, to some extent, Jesus was at least initially openly accepted, if not fully believed. But now Jesus makes his move out of Galilee and heads toward Jerusalem there in the south, in Judea. But he's going to do so in a rather unexpected way. Instead of going around this place called Samaria through the Decapolis and Perea and into Judea, which would have been the normal Jews' path, he's going to go straight down. But not straight down. Luke's actually going to take us and he's going to like take us all across Samaria, all, all the way. It's like Jesus is in no hurry, at least in Luke, the way Luke tells the story, right? Samaria, if you remember, is a place that Jews avoided because it was normatively secular, but religiously familiar, even if it was somewhat apprehensive to that religion. It wasn't a completely 
secular place. There's secularity within the Jewish state. I mean, Jerusalem was a capital city. There were Romans there, all kinds of stuff. Like secularism, the way we think of it is insiders and outsiders, like of, of people of faith and people not of faith. It wasn't kind of broken up like as clear as that, right? Religion and politics were super mixed, right? But there was a difference between the, the, the Greeks and the Romans who had come in as kind of the oppressors, the, 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 the state-run things, and the Samaritans. Because the Samaritans had a history of faith. They had a history of, of relationship with, um, with Yahweh. Um, and in fact, their land... Um, um, they had uh, people who at one time were connected into his story. They were expected and dependent upon God to act. Yet for various reasons, their own choices, political alignments, environmental circumstances, cultural pressures, they had little space for what was called the old religion of the South, the religion of Jerusalem and Judea. While they still wanted very similar things to their Jewish neighbors and ancestors, they wanted wholeness and peace and prosperity, the means of achieving such and the relation of such things to, what, to God actually differed. It'd be safe to say that, that very much like in our day, in our place, amongst the Samaritans, there was a spectrum of faith and spirituality, ranging from the apathetic to the aggravated. But, but it all had to do with this kind of Jewish connection to faith. It wasn't a polyistic faith, not completely anyway. It was this this merger of, of worship of God and worship of maybe Asterisk and like some other little local deity type things, but it was still this Yahweh-oriented kind of history and worship. But for most part, Samaritans were either um, aggressively against kind of the Jewish old school way of faith, um, or they were kind of aggravated at it, took offense to it. But for the most part, most of them just looked at faith practically, Right? That you used faith when you needed it. Use God when you needed God. And that was just kind of the normal way. And so for the, for the, for the, um, because of that history, coupled with this idea in Judaism that if you were to, to make a move into a place that thought like that, to, to walk amongst people who thought like that and rub kind of elbows with them, that somehow their lack of faith or polluted faith would muddy your faith. This idea that like it was like almost like a disease that could be spread. You understand why then most Jews would go around Samaria. A God-honoring Jew, a truly God-honoring Jew would avoid the unclean place, the place where they might pick up a lesser faith. But Jesus takes his disciples right in the middle of it. In fact, in chapter nine, verse 51, Jesus takes the disciples right through. So this morning, what we're gonna do to help us get into the prayer that Jesus prays, to let us hear it in a way that I think actually lands on us and transforms us. We're gonna briskly kind of walk through these first steps into the Samaritan land. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter nine, verse 51, and we're just gonna walk through this, again, pretty briskly together. And we're gonna walk into what, I, again, what I think is more like what we walk into each day when we walk out the front door. But here we have Jesus, again, a good Jew, the Messiah, the one who has come to be, um, to renew and restore um, the, the, the people of God, going into a place where the people of God avoid, right? Um, um, or at least the, the, the insiders. And it says in verse 51, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, that is when it's towards the end of his ministry, towards the end of his life before he's going to the cross, he, Jesus, set his face to Jerusalem. He knew where he was going, right? This isn't Jesus just meandering around 
for meandering around's sake. Like he's making a purposeful move towards Jerusalem. But he's doing so on a route that seems like the opposite route that we would think he would take. In verse 52, and so Jesus sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the villages of the Samaritans to make preparations for Jesus. But the people did not receive Jesus because Jesus' Jesus' face was set towards Jerusalem. So who did the people of Samaria not receive? We just need to point this out at the beginning. Who did they not receive? Did they not receive Jesus' disciples or did they not receive Jesus? Because that's a very important, important distinction. Who did they reject? Jesus. Why did they reject Jesus? Because he was going towards Jerusalem. So meaning, one of two things, right? Meaning either they rejected him because he was set to go and do this thing that would change the whole world, the cross, the death and resurrection, the way of his proclamation of how he's going to free didn't settle with them. That's maybe part of it. But part of it too was their own prejudice, right? Like he was on his way to Jerusalem. He was on his way to the place of worship. He was kind of buying into, at least initially in their minds, the old school religion and they didn't want anything to do with it. They didn't want anything to do with the, the, the religion of people who worship God only in Jerusalem versus you can worship God wherever you want, which is what the Samaritans believed, right? So, like, so they, they initially have this rejection of, of Jesus because he seems to be a little old school, just like everybody else. All the other ones who want to come in and convert them. Verse 54, and when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them like Elijah? This is the response of the disciples. Look, they rejected you. They rejected your message. Let them all burn. Isn't this what you want? Don't you want them all to burn? Isn't that what they all get? That's what happened, right? When, 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 when the, the prophets of Baal, like when they, when they were shown that their God was weak and Elijah called down fire on them, right? That's, this is what we do, right? This is what disciples do. We call down fire. In verse 55, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. Jesus turned and rebuked them. He didn't just correct them, he rebuked them. And in some manuscripts it says, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. So the disciples go into Samaria and their own prejudice is there, right? These are not insiders, these are not us. And look, the not us rejected us. And so what do we do? We condemn them. And Jesus says, That's not how it works. That's not how it works. I didn't come to destroy, I came to save. And they went on to another village, verse 56. As they were going along the road, some one said to him, whether this was a Samaritan or a Jew, we don't know, but maybe a Samaritan because we're now in the land of Samaria, right? These are ones who are starting to, like just like in Galilee, some rejected, some did not. He says, I will follow follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Again, we talked about this last week, so we won't go into detail. Are you ready to be needy? Because that's what he said. Remember last week? What What was Jesus preparing the disciples before they went into Samaria? Blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God, for there shall be the kingdom of God, right? Theirs is the kingdom of God. Are you poor and needy? Are you ready to be poor and needy? Are you ready to be dependent? In just a minute, he's going to work that out for us in practicality. But like he's asking, this, this, this one who says, I'm in with you, Jesus. Jesus says, great. Are you ready to be needy? Great, follow me. Follow me into need. Verse 59, to another, Jesus said, follow me. 
So one comes to Jesus, another one, Jesus sees in them some, poor, some sort of faith, and he says, now follow me, just like he did the other disciples, which is a pretty big thing, right? Maybe to a Samaritan, to invite a Samaritan in. But, Jesus, uh, but, the, but the person Jesus invited said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. We may miss this, but here's what's happening. To have a dead one in your home is, to, is like you could have that for a moment, but then you, you had to remove the dead one from your home and bury the dead one and do so in a timely manner or else your whole house became unclean. And your whole, like you, were, uh, you would therefore be one who was unable to worship God. You would be unable to enter into the presence of God and to do the things of faith, like of religion, right? And so this person is saying, hey, listen, I need to follow the rules of religion in order to be able to follow you. I need to make sure my house is clean, like clean spiritually, clean like religiously in order to be able to be one who follows you. And what did Jesus say to this one? Verse, 50, uh, verse um, 60. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, which sounds, which sounds harsh. But remember what we talked about last week. Part of the thing that Jesus is doing to his disciples, he's teaching them to be needy. He's teaching them to let go of the old religious things that bind them from the things that see, he's freeing them from. And so he says the same thing to him. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Proclaim the same good news of liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed, the peace of the Lord, the favor of the Lord. Yet another in verse 61 said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my house. Hey, I'm in with you. I just got a few things to take care of back home before, before I'm in with you. And Jesus said to him, for no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit. This idea of fit is this idea of in a place ready to receive, ready to make use of the thing. It's not fit like you're not, you're not good enough. It's you're not ready to make use of the kingdom of God. Anyone who gets a plow, starts plowing and looking around is not ready to use a plow. You're not ready to use it. Like, because you're gonna cut off your foot, you're gonna cut off something else, you're gonna like run out of, out of the way, you're not gonna take advantage and make straight lines, and the land's gonna be all crooked, you're not gonna be able to grow these things. Every farmer knows this. If you can't keep the plow straight, if you grab the plow and look around or take your hand off of it, you're not ready to, be, to use the plow properly. You're ready to take advantage of what the plow does. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not that he's not, he's not able to, he's able to do it, He's just not in a place to take advantage of it. The kingdom of God, the freedom, won't be able to be lived true, full, whole, complete. So Jesus enters into this land, a land in which he does the exact same things that he did in Galilee, where he calls people to follow him, shows them kind of what they expect in following him and how that differs and what he expects from them. And then he does something pretty cool that he also did at the beginning of chapter nine, but he does it now in a foreign land. He says, after this in 10 verse one, the Lord appointed 72 others, others. So this is not just the 12. The 12 are in, in chapter nine, uh, verse one. Jesus sends out the 12 kind of apostles that we think of, right? And here he sends out 72 others. There's a whole group of people, everybody. Everybody's included, not just the apostles, not just the Jewish apostles. Everyone's included in this. That's a, that's a part of this. And listen, like there's, there's some um, kind of like the way this is written, there's an understanding that in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that it would have been um, common at this time 
there's, there's a place in Isaiah where um, um, God's talking about what he's going to do for the nations, and he names 74 nations, or 72 nations. And so there's this idea that like, this is to all the world, right? This is kind of Luke setting up what Acts is going to be, right? Luke chapter 10 is Luke setting up what the story of Acts is going to get to play out in full and what, where the, um, the story of the, the book of Acts kind of comes out of. And there's lots of parallels really are interested in, in it. There's lots of parallels with Acts and just in this chapter. This chapter, a lot of things that happen in Acts are talked about in this chapter. They're done in this chapter and then like accentuated in, in the book of Acts, which is pretty cool. It's a pretty amazing, amazing thing. But for our purposes, we're just going to keep walking through it, right? So here's Jesus telling all those who are with him in this land of kind of, of, of maybe insiders, outsiders, ambivalent towards faith, all this kind of stuff. He sends them out to go ahead of him into every town and place where Jesus himself is about to go. To, to make ready, like John the Baptist did, uh, the, the way of the Lord, this, this, this proclamation. And Jesus said to them, the harvest is plentiful, verse 2, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors of the harvest. Again, whose harvest is it? It's the Lord's harvest. And what does the Lord say about the harvest? Are you making the harvest happen? No, the harvest is already ready. All we need is people who can go in and take advantage of it. Who can be ones who set their mind and hold to the plow and don't turn around back and forth, but can take advantage of the, their ability and the freedom that God's given them, right? Like it's there. It's already there. So we need ones who can be good laborers, who are fit to labor, who are ready with a, with a focused heart to be able to experience and help others experience the fullness of the kingdom. He says, verse three, go on your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Jesus, I love Jesus because he's like, listen, I'm not gonna pull any punches. Like you will be ones who have apparently no defenses and no ability on your own to live amongst those who are looking and able to take life right? Who hunt life? Like, that's the way you're going to live. It's going to feel like your lambs and their wolves. He doesn't pull any punches. He's like, this is really what it's going to feel like. It's going to feel that different, that contrasting, right? That my way is going to feel like you have no way of being a part of this without getting destroyed and eaten. We are always on the lookout for the thing that's going to eat you, right? Like, he's kind of preparing their hearts for this, right? Like, this way is going to be so different, you're going to feel that timid, that one desperate in need for a shepherd, right? Like, who actually knows how to take advantage of a shepherd, who knows why they need to be near a shepherd, right? But he's preparing them for that. He's setting their hearts up for that. And he says, verse four, go, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Take nothing with you. Again, you're gonna be dependent. You're gonna learn to be dependent. And you're not even gonna greet anybody. And that's, again, that's an idea of like, you're not going to get distracted, right? You're going, and it's not about your travels of you going from A to B. It's what you're going to do at B, right? So keep, your, keep focused, keep on, keep on task, keep going to where you're meant to be going. Verse five, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. Declare the favor of the Lord. Peace, peace be here. The peace of the Lord is here. And if a son of peace, if an inheritor of peace, if, a, if someone who is in the inheritance of peace, that means it's already been given to him because again, the harvest is ready. If they're there, your peace will rest upon them. Your peace will echo with them. You will be able to recognize in spirit who's with you. Who's a part of this with you? You will be able to recognize that. They will be able to recognize that. There's something about this that's going to come together. How incredible is that? Right? 
to declare it. And the way you find out is you declare it. You declare and you speak peace. And then there's a reciprocation of that. There's something in their lives, in their hearts, that reciprocate the peace. And it comes together. But if not, it'll return to you. If not, you'll recognize that too. You'll see that there's something in the spirit, in your spirit, that just doesn't connect at this moment, in this time. As hard as that is, you'll recognize it. So, like, maybe don't beat it into, right? But, like, maybe there's just a simple recognition of, hey, I declare it. When it's there, we recognize it. And when it's not, okay. Verse 7. And then remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. So, again, hey, you're dependent. And part of your dependence is learning to be dependent upon others. And where you're received, you receive what you receive, right? You're taking in. And, like, this is really hard, especially for, like, it's not hard for, for a, a Middle Easterner to accept the hospitality of another. It's hard for a Jew to accept the hospitality of a Samaritan, right? To be received into their house. To let the one who seems like, at least from a cultural standpoint, that they're the outsider and the ones that don't get it be the one that provide for you. It's a really place of humility to, to be able to do that, right? Because again, everything in the Jewish custom, in the religious custom, would say you stay out of the house and away from. But, but Jesus is saying, no, you receive from them. But then he says, because listen, listen, he's like, you, this, is, this is how I'm providing for you. The laborer gets his wages. Like I've actually prepared their heart for this, for you, which is pretty incredible, right? That this is a mutual thing. And then he says, but don't go from house to house. Don't get greedy. Listen, you're gonna, some of you may really like receiving from others. Um, you, so some of you may think what the other person in the house, like the, the village over got, is better than what you got. So you're going to want to go and try to take advantage of everybody else in the town. You want what they got. Like, he just knows our hearts, right? So he's like, listen, just be content with what I've given because I've given it to you. Don't go around looking for more and more. Don't be one who is, like, scraping by and begging for it, and don't be one who's greedy and going after it, Right? I'll give you all you need. That's what he's telling them, to rest in. Verse eight, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Again, we read that, great, awesome. Again, a Jew would have read that and said, how can I? There's no way, it's not pure. It doesn't meet the kosher codes. But he's like, no, no, even if it's not kosher, even if the dead's still in the house, let the dead bury the dead. Eat the unkosher food. Eat whatever's given to you. Receive what you've been given. Verse nine, heal the sick. In it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Proclaim and demonstrate the words that which I've told you. Freedom to the captives, healing from the sick, all those kind of things. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Like, push it off, get the dirt off. Now, we read that really harshly, right? And there is a, there is a piece of harshness to it. There is a piece of like, hey, listen, like, I'm not taking your rejection. Like, your rejection doesn't come with me. You're not receiving me doesn't come with me. And that's for the disciples. They need to be able to do that. Because what do we do when we are not accepted by those who we go to share with? We get bitter. We get angry. We get frustrated. We get down. We get sad. We get complacent. We get all those kind of things. And Jesus said, hey, no, listen, listen. This is just the way it works. So dust the feet off. Dust your feet off. Don't take any of it with you. But then he does say this. He says, nevertheless, he says, but wait, but don't just dust the feet off. Like, all right, I'm done with you. Don't just dust it off. Nevertheless, say this, know that the kingdom of God has come near. 
Nevertheless, even if you reject me, the kingdom of God has come near to you. That God wants you to be a part of this. That there's opportunity for you to be a part of this. That there is more to what, that your rejection is, you're missing out on more to what, than what's happening here, right? And it's, again, it's not a condemnation thing. It's a, hey, listen, like I know you've said no, but the kingdom of God's still here. The kingdom of God's still near. And then Jesus says in verse 12, I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day for Sodom than for that town. And this, <laughs> this is where we get confused. This is where we start to get confused. We're like, well, wait a minute. There's all this mercy and stuff, but Sodom, we remember what happened to Sodom. Like, this is fire and brimstone. Well, what about John and James? I thought, they, I thought you said no to the fire and brimstone thing. I mean, Sodom was the most, like, debaucherous place, right? Literally, their lust for everything in life and wanting to use people led them to mob violence and murder, right? Like, it is, it is the, the epitome of, like, debauchery, of the fallenness of humanity, and so, like, so Jesus is saying, wait a minute, so a town that simply rejects us, people that simply reject us, it, it's better for the, the, the ones in Sodom than here? Well, again, as the disciples would have heard this, they would have been like, well, wait a minute, you just said not to call down fire, so what's, what's going on? And so Jesus explains in verse 13. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if mighty works were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting... Um, um, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Now, again, for those of us outside of the Jewish world, outside of Israel, we have no idea what Jesus is talking about, right? But hey, Amber, will you show that second picture on the map? So what Jesus does, essentially, um, there should, if you go to the image, yeah, there's like a one. There's just, there you go, Perfect. So you see up in Galilee, all the towns that Jesus names are right there. There's Chorazon, Capernaum, and Bethsaida right under the word Galilee. You see that little triangle? This is literally the towns that every disciple was from, the apostles. They were from one of these three towns. This is their towns. So Jesus is saying, hey, listen, you think it's bad for, for these towns in Samaria? Oh, well, wait a minute. Your towns are staying in the same place. Because listen, Tyre and Sidon, Tyre and Sidon, up there in the north, just the Syrophoenician kind of area, they have a long history in the history of Israel, both being a part of the kingdom of God, but also leaving the kingdom of God. In fact, the king of Sidon was Jezebel's dad, the one who introduced into the, 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 the Israel all the, the Baal and Balaam worship that led to the burning of the prophets in Elijah's day. And so Jesus is saying, hey, listen, like if they, again, remember what his prayer was at the end. Kings and prophets of old would have loved to see and hear what you're getting to hear. If they had gotten to experience what you're experiencing, these horrendous places in your history, Sodom, Tyre, Sidon, these places that you think of, like Capernaum, which you think is the best place, the place of heaven. Like all those places, all those places would have turned and repented. And so Jesus said, hey, listen, you've been rejected in this land that seems as an outside land in Samaria, but weren't we just rejected in your own hometown in Galilee? What Jesus is trying to do, I think, is kind of expose what happens in our hearts, in the disciples' hearts, is we tend to elevate ourselves above and are different than the others, right? And again, Jesus over and over again says, no, you're not, 
It's not them and us, it's us. You're them. You're the same ones. You're, you're, your neighbors and friends, your Jewish neighbors and friends are the same as your neighbors and friends in Samaria. And their rejection is the same rejection, right? Because then he goes on in verse 16 and says, the one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Even the insiders who reject me, who reject you, are really rejecting me and rejecting the Father. Again, it sounds super harsh to our ears, and there's a level of it that's meant to be kind of harsh, but it's harsh because it's, it's hitting on our prejudices. It's harsh because it's hitting on our way we, we kind of tend to look at the world dichotomously, where we're like, hey, like God treats those who are kind of on the inside this way and on the outside this way. And Jesus just breaks all those down. He says, no, I treat people this way. And listen, I still would have, I, like, listen, even the worst of the worst people, like, in, our, in your own history, would have longed to have the opportunity to see what you get to see and experience what you get to experience. And if they had, they would have turned. So your hearts are just as hard as the ones who you think are the hardest, worst hearts, right? Again, it, there's a piece of it that kind of condemns, but it condemns in a way to push us back into a look at ourselves and look at what Jesus has done, Right? And then he says again, the one who hears, hears you, hears me. Remember, it's not about you. It's not about you. Like, they hear you because I am speaking through you. They hear you because they hear me. They receive you only because they receive me. And so they receive the Father. Like again, it's not about you. You're obviously involved in it. It's not about you which is really helpful for those of us who are going out and trying to talk about Jesus, right? So you might think, or I would think anyway, that, okay, so Jesus kind of preparation for sending these 72 into the Samaritan lands. He's like preparing them for failure, right? To some degree, a little bit. It's like, hey, listen, you're going out as lambs amongst wolves. Don't take anything with you. So people are going to reject you. Like it's better, it would have been better for these places of old who, who literally burned um, um, than it's going to be for these because like, like at least like they would have repented. Their hearts would have been open, but these heart, hearts are closed. And so you just kind of have this sense of like, oh man, is this going to go really bad? <laughs> like, I mean, honestly, right? If you're just reading it, like I would think if there weren't subtitles, Right? This is the part of the story where the disciples come back and are like, man, it was just like we just got rejected and people beat us and then we were just destroyed in persecution. Instead, verse 17, the 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. It's really funny because demons at this point hadn't been mentioned, right? <laughs> like, it's not like, which means this, that they got to do all the things. They got to, be, they got to go into people's homes, declare peace, they got to receive peace from others, receive the blessings from others. They got to heal the sickness. They got to proclaim the kingdom, people being healed from disease and from sin. And they also got to have this big conflict with demons and like the, 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 the reality of spiritual and physical coming into conflict and reality. And they got to oversee and overcome, right? Be a part of it in which, which like it, over, it was like this massive battle, right? I just think of, as a dad, I just think of, like, my son, the way he tells stories, right? Coming in from, from a hunting trip or something or, like, being outside or playing imagination. No matter how many, like, normal good things were there, the thing that's going to be talked about is the most, like, highly conflicting thing, right? The, the conflict that was overcome, the, the part of the game that was the most intense, right? Where we overcome the enemy, something like that, right? That's what I think of when, as the disciples are saying this. Like, this is what's happening. 
<laughs> and then Jesus said to them, which is great, which means great. It went really well. <laughs> it went really well. This is really good. And then Jesus said to them, and he doesn't rebuke them. I love this, right? He doesn't rebuke them or correct them in the sense of like, oh, how could you think that? You, you, you foolish, you foolish ones. But he says this. He says, I love this line. It's one of my favorite lines in scripture. So they're like, man, demons are subject to us. It's pretty awesome. Like we, we beat the out of these guys. Like it was great. And then Jesus said, oh yeah, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. <laughs> it's like, cool. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I was kind of there when the battle, the real battle happened, but it's cool, man. It's great, bro. Like that two-point comeback, that was awesome. Um, you know, so I saw Satan fall like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Listen, like, you're right. You should have won. Gee, I've given you that power and authority. I didn't mention any of that before. You got to see that fleshed out as you got to live as people of peace, proclaiming peace, bringing healing and restoration. Like you got to recognize that there's power and authority to step on the lowliest of things, to crush them and to not be harmed by them. Verse 20, nevertheless, the same word that's used back in verse, verse 11, after you dust off feet, nevertheless, proclaim the kingdom of God is near. Nevertheless, after you recognize the authority and power that you have because of me, what I've given to you as the ultimate power and authority, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. This is not the source of your joy. Power and authority, overcoming the enemy is not the source of your joy. It's not the source of your joy. Rather, no, this is not the source of your joy, that the spirits are subject to you. The source of your joy is not that the spirits are subject to you. It's not that you can overcome the enemy. It's not what you got to conquer, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The source of your joy is not the power and authority that you possess, but the fidelity, the intimacy, the familial relationship of God to you. That's the source of your power. A loyal effective love. That your name is written in heaven. That your name is, is not blotted out because of your sin, but rather is included in the list of my family. That's what written in heaven means. The source of your joy, the source of your energy, the source of what, what gives you strength to be able to live the way I'm calling you to live, to do the things I've called you to do, is not that you have power and authority over spirits and things like that. You do. Great. I saw Satan fall like lightning. What did he do? You get it too. Like the, the power, the source of your joy, the thing that where you live from is that I'm faithful to you and I call you my own. That I have never given up on you and I'm always for you. I don't know that there's a better way to describe a mom than that. I mean, think about it just for a second, just a half a second. When I think of like what a dad conveys to a, to a child, there is this kind of sense of authority and power, right? Like, like there is a piece of it, and this isn't wrong, right? This is just the way that it's even designed. The, the male character, the, 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 the father of the household, there is a sense of power and authority, right? Of, of responsibility. 
Not that the mom doesn't have power and authority by any means, but what does the mom convey to the child? Like, who does a child run to when they're wounded or when they're, like, overly joyous? Both extremes of, like, when they need something. When my kids need something, who do they yell out for? Mom! Sometimes that's, Mom, come fix my problem. Sometimes that's, Mom, I'm hurt. Sometimes that's, Mom, I'm scared. Sometimes that's, Mom, I'm, I'm really excited. Mom, come look at this. This is incredible, right? Not that they don't do some of that for me, but really, naturally, naturally, just naturally, who does a child yell out for? Mom. How amazing is it that Jesus is telling his disciples, like, listen, the source of your joy is kind of the thing that moms stir up in you. It's not the power and authority that, like, hey, like, I can take care of myself. I can take care of the world. I can be completely take care of because something is overcoming the enemy. He's like, that's not where the source of your joy is. Kind of that manly, fatherly, good, manly, fatherly kind of feel, right? The source of it is what we tend to think of when we think of moms. And there, out of that place, verse 21, Jesus spontaneously rejoices in the Holy Spirit. And says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. These things. That it's not power and authority from which my, is the source of my joy, the source of my ability, the source of my following your calling, but rather the source of my life, this life I live with you, is that you've mothered me. You've hidden it from the wise and revealed it to who? To little children. Now, you may think, again, it's strange that we've talked about this idea of mothering, but, but, but it's not actually. like So we've talked about this before, so I won't, go, I won't say anything more about it. Just, I'll just say it. Like, so Jesus knew the Psalms like we, we'll ne- we never will, right? Like he actually learned to pray through the Psalms as a Jewish boy. Like he would have learned the Psalms in an intimate way. He would have known them. That would have been the way he talked about God, the way he knew how to talk to even his father God, right? It wouldn't just have been spontaneous prayers. Spontaneous prayers came out of his ability to, because he knew the Psalms, right? So when we hear Jesus pray, we hear Jesus pray in the Psalms, even if it's not a quotation from the Psalms. That's true of almost every Jewish person even today. When you hear what seems like a spontaneous prayer, it's almost always a psalmitic prayer. They learn how to pray through the psalms. And one of the psalms that Jesus would have learned to pray multiple times, many a times, would have been a psalm of ascent, a psalm that was prayed on their way to to Jerusalem for the festivals like Passover. In fact, it would have been prayed on one of those trips like when we have in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus left his parents and went into the temple. And this, this particular psalm is Psalm 131. And so I've asked Kate and Lexi to come read Psalm 131 for us, and then this will be the last thing, and then we'll kind of just enter into a time of reflection and worship. But will you guys read Psalm 131 for us? Again, a psalm that Jesus knew really, really well. God, I'm not trying to rule the worst. I don't want to be king of the mountain. I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasize grandiose plans. I've kept my feet on the ground. I've cultivated a quiet heart, like a lean child can 
content in its mother's arms, my soul is a child content. We, Israel, those who wrestle with God and live, wait for God, wait with hope, hope now, hope always. So, Amber, if you'll go back to that, to the, to the middle of that. I've kept, a, I've kept my feet on the ground. I've cultivated a quiet heart. The thing that we talk about a lot is the faith family that we're after, right? This is the people, to be a people of peace, who live at peace, who have stopped trying to wrestle to overcome the enemies, to, to be king of the mountain, to rule the roost, to all those kind of things, who have learned to be needy, independent, and then what does the psalmist, how does the psalmist describe what that state of quietness is? Who does, how does he describe it? He describes it like a child who's weaned in his mother's arms. Like a child that's weaned with its mother. One who's, who's dependent on the mom, not attached to the mom like an infant. There's, a, there's, there's an intentionality to the image of weaned. Like a toddler or maybe like um, one who's not old enough to, like, and again, in this early stage, by like, by like you know, anywhere between 10 and 13, they're, they're kind of out of the house generally doing work. So this is kind of before that, right? This is before the time when they're still around the home, around the mom, but they're not like just stuck to the mom. And in that time of life, in which they're able to roam the home, roam with responsibility to be free, that's the place the psalmist says, that's the image the psalmist uses to quiet his heart and his mind. In the place of one who's coddled by his mom, cared for by his mom, and instructed by his mom, dependent, but not in a way that keeps them from life, but allows them to experience life free, right? Like a child. As we go and speak of Jesus. These are ones who want to walk in Samaria well. <laughs> this is the place that we get to start. How fitting that it happens to be on Mother's Day. In the motherhood of God for us. So what I want us to do, just for a few moments, is listen, like, again, I'm not naive. I know not all of our mother's stories are great, right? We, we, we mothers are, are human. Um, um, some of, our, some of our experiences with our moms aren't the best, um, but we've all been mothered well at some point by others, whether it's our physical mom or somebody around us who have created a space for us to feel free. To feel free to come and cry when we need to cry. Free to come and rejoice when we need to rejoice. Free just to live. And so for just, just about 60 seconds, maybe two minutes, Let's just quiet our hearts and minds and rest in this place so that we might be ones who get to see what prophets and kings wanted to see in our life. We pray with me? Father, <laughs> thank you. Thank you that the things that we elevate, the positions of power and authority and um, wisdom and understanding, those aren't the means that you communicate to us what is true. But rather in 
the intimacy of, of one's parented. It's how we know you. And the ones who were to make known.